Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to our Tonight Show special report, COVID, one year on. Over the next 90 minutes, we'll be looking at 12 months of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a special documentary film from the front line and we ask the experts, is there an end game in sight in our battle with the virus? We'll also count the cost of the crisis in terms of health, finances, livelihoods and mental health. Do get in touch on Twitter or hashtag TonightVMTV. Well, it's been an extraordinary 12 months in all of our lives since the first confirmed case of coronavirus in Ireland exactly a year ago. There have been over 200,000 confirmed cases, over 4,000 deaths and endless disruption to all of our lives. On this first anniversary of the crisis, we examine the issues raised by this once-in-a-generation pandemic. But first tonight, Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King has been filming for us on the front line to bring us the story of the pandemic through the eyes of frontline healthcare staff. Here's her documentary. One year into Ireland's response to COVID-19 and patients continue to present in high numbers at hospitals right across the country. Unwell, unsure and in desperate need of critical care. These last 12 months have been unrelenting for everyone, but for those on the front line, it has been something else. Something they never anticipated. Something that has forever changed their lives and remains a constant pressure. The staff are just exhausted from it. I mean, they've put up with this for a year, putting themselves at no small personal risk to look after these patients, and they're just, at this stage, they're exhausted. We can cope with the peak in stress. What we can't cope with is when stress continues, and that's what we're seeing now. What amazes me is the personal sacrifices that staff make to come to work. I was a bit nervous that, like, they might catch the virus or something. Tonight, Virgin Media News looks back on this past year through the eyes of frontline workers at St Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin. I'll be there as soon as I can. With little time to pause and reflect, their first-hand accounts are told as they work through the third and biggest surge. This is a whole different ballgame. It nearly kind of overpowered us as a staff. Taking our cameras inside to see the crisis from their point of view. Our health system just isn't designed to deal with these pandemics. And there are consequences. Over the past 12 months, St Vincent's University Hospital staff have been battling the COVID-19 pandemic, running COVID and non-COVID emergency departments, wards and ICUs side by side. 
staff are stretched thin and under immense pressure. And in December, an unexpected and brutal third wave of the virus. In that um, impact from last year was huge. It nearly kind of overpowered us as a staff. And there were times that inside the COVID area, there was a lot of people queuing outside with really bad symptoms. And you kind of, your heart just breaks, you know? The intensity was greater. The number of patients coming through was greater. And in particular, the number of patients who were very unwell, essentially holding on to dear life and needing to go on to intensive care. How are you? We're the intensive care doctors. We're just going to go through everything and okay. make some treatment plans for today, all right? In this wave, most of the patients who've come into the ICU, pretty much within 12, 24 hours, they've ended up on a breathing machine. They've been at a much more advanced stage of the disease. It doesn't look like the COVID in the lungs is a big problem for you. It's more the COVID's probably precipitated some of those heart problems. Yeah. What I've seen over the last two weeks, um, to me, seems quite, quite different from the disease process that we saw the first time around. Uh, I do think that the patients we're seeing coming in since Christmas time are a lot, lot sicker. Um, and the characteristics seem to be a little bit different from what we saw back in the springtime. And one of those differences is a worrying trend. Entire households becoming desperately ill. You OK, Michael? Eight days into his COVID diagnosis, Michael Morrissey is brought by ambulance into the emergency department with an irregular heartbeat. Aged in his 70s, Michael's partner is also COVID positive and is currently in the hospital up in St. Monica's ward, receiving high-level care. Do you want us to tell your wife, Michael, that you're here? Pardon? Worry her. OK, we won't tell her at the minute. It's not uncommon, particularly in this third wave, to see couples and extended family members admitted at the same time. And his wife is upstairs. Yeah, she got moved to Monica's. Monica's, yeah. It's not surprising, really, particularly with the third wave. We've had so much disease in the community. What the public health doctors are trying to do is drive the disease into the houses. But if you have one or two family members with the disease in a house, it's not surprising that you'll get household contacts. I've seen families of three family members in the hospital. Yesterday, there was an elderly gentleman who came in uh, very much in respiratory distress, needing respiratory support, and his wife was already in intensive care. And uh, one of their children uh, was also admitted to hospital elsewhere. For Mr Morrissey, everyone in his household has contracted COVID, along with extended members of the family. How many people in your family have it now? Well, three in the house. Three in the house. Yeah. yeah. You all have it. I know. I know. So in Michael's case, Michael went up to the ICU. He was moved on to another ward then. And when he was moved to that ward, his partner ended up deteriorating on the ward that she was on. And she ended up in the intensive care unit as well. So it's a very upsetting story. Upstairs in the ICU, the team is meeting for a handover. The wife of one of their patients is also COVID positive and is about to be transferred to the ICU. I, I wasn't aware oh, right, that his wife, she's an inpatient, she's an inpatient with COVID. Contact. 
with COVID. And what about her respiratory rate? Respiratory rate, high 30s, 40s. And the tidal volume, is she taking big deep breaths? Or? There are about 500 mils. Yeah. I think we should bring her to the ICU. I think she'll, she'll come here one way or the other eventually. Okay, all right, well, let's admit her. Oxygenate's okay. And the ABGA taken was on the air like after half an hour. Chaos is definitely the enemy of, of intensive care because these patients are very, very complex. It has to be very organised. It has to be systematic. You got over to see your husband yesterday, you did? Yeah. He's just across the way. Did you just see him this morning? Yeah, I see him every day. Yeah, he's about the same as he was yesterday. Yeah, and he's very comfortable. We have more than one husband and wife couple within this ICU, um, which is not something that I've seen before. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't be surprised given how this spreads through families and social contacts, and that's the only social contacts people have at the moment. As this third wave is slowly brought under control, an opportunity for staff to reflect on the last 12 months. We really had no idea how many people were going to present to hospitals sick. I don't think anybody did. Um, so it was really uh, sort of, you were walking into the unknown. Italy has today seen the sharpest rise in fatalities that any country has seen so far throughout the pandemic. The images that were broadcast from northern Italy. Um, I think that was mid-March. It sounded really, really scary. Footage shows 11 military trucks transporting coffins to crematoriums across the country. I think we were all quite anxious. You know, I, I think it would be unfair to say we weren't. Like, I think we all remember the first time we put on PPE. You know, we were quite uh, particular about it, whereas now it's become force of, it's kind of just a, a general habit that we can put it on and take it off pretty quickly, pretty safely. I think even the first patient who was positive for the virus but didn't necessarily have symptoms. When they were been moved around the hospital, it was a major operation. Um, porters would be closing all the doors down the corridor. There'd be, it was almost like the plague had descended upon the place. I was known as a COBA port. I was taking all the COBA patients where they had to go for like, wherever they were going around the hospital, you know. It was, it was busy enough at the start, you know. One of the senior nurses in the intensive care unit where I work here in Vincent's presented a little cardboard box with the word Corona written on it uh, with about four masks and <laughs> inside the box. Now, if I brought you up there now, there's a whole area devoted to donning and doffing PPE. We have a whole separate COVID ICU running in parallel to all of our normal intensive care patients. When it came to us last March, it actually wasn't quite as overwhelming as other countries faced. And so as we face into this wave, we've sort of seen and learnt from the last wave of COVID. And the difference this time around really is the staff are just exhausted from it. I mean, they've put up with this for a year. They come in here to the ICU, the nurses in particular, for 12-hour shifts and uncomfortable PPE. and putting themselves at no small personal risk to look after these patients and they're just at this stage, they're exhausted. After a full year battling the pandemic, exhaustion among staff is now a critical issue. 
We conducted the CIRA study, which is the COVID-19 Emergency Response Assessment. And we looked at that back in the first wave, and what we found at the peak was levels of psychological distress of about 45%, and of psychological trauma of about 23.7%. And at the very pointy end of that, we found um, levels of what probably constituted probable post-traumatic stress disorder of about 12.5% at the peak and 10% afterwards. And that was during the first wave. And we know the third wave has probably been even more intense. Have you got two patients, Marie? Yeah. As human beings, we, we, you know, we can cope with the peak in stress. What we can't cope with is when stress continues. And that's what we're seeing now. What have we got? 23 or 24 patients today? I can't remember. Yeah. In total? Yeah, I'm not sure it's not in charge, but... Um, and how many? We're kind of 16, 17 nurses. Now, we work in intensive care. It is an intense environment, and we are used to that, but this is, this is a whole different ballgame. Um, none of us would have expected this, um, and it's very hard. We've been looking after colleagues. We've had colleagues that have passed away on us. So it's very, very difficult. And the mortality rate this time round, in the third wave, as you call it, is particularly high. Um, and that's very, very hard on the staff here. You know, I think what amazes me is the personal sacrifices that staff make to come to work. You know, it's not a job that you can social distance from. You know, it's a job that is hands-on and, you know, whatever role you have in the hospital, people are coming in and, you know, they're coming into a place full of sick people with a lot of people with COVID. You know, they are putting themselves at increased risk. So all the day staff are just getting ready, putting on all their PPE for the day. Good morning. How are you? I think the pandemic has affected everybody. Everyone's social life and family life has been affected. And that's also the same for people here, but on top of that, they have this job. Just constantly, constantly get the COVID coming. Patients going home, more patients coming in. and It's just like a conveyor belt. And the amount that people we lost through, you know, going home, you're going home with your wife and your two kids, and you just, you know, you're just mentally wrecked. They want to. Dave was saying, how was your job and how was work today? And just kind of explain, you know, every day is different to them. Like, we got eight uh, COVID test swabs, you know, from close contacts or something like that. It was never positive, but any time I had to go home and isolate, the kids would just, you know, stay. Oh, is daddy going to be all right? Is he allowed out? You know, it's hard on them as well. I know even from my own kids, it's definitely had an effect on them because obviously at a young age, they're worried about mum and dad. Um, my wife's in healthcare as well, so mum and dad getting infected. So um, the work that we do has an impact on those around us for sure. Back at home, John's wife Eilish, an anaesthetist, has recently taken a step back working part-time to ensure there's always a parent at home to homeschool their three children. Our eldest in particular started watching the news every evening to see the numbers and she, you know, became very determined to follow the trend in the numbers. Um, all three of them became obsessed with what time we would come home at in the evening. Um, they wanted to know what time we would come home and if one of us were running late, it would really upset them. So that for us was quite upsetting as well. I used to watch the news every evening because I wanted to know what, what, what was going on so I'd have a rough idea, you know. They're kind of treating COVID patients pretty much every day. And I was a bit nervous that like they might catch the virus or something. 
I was worried that one of them would get it or that something terrible would happen. It was very difficult to leave work at the door, um, you know, when we were coming home and not to bring that sense of anxiety um, and bleakness, I suppose, back into the house with us. Can I help with anything? Well, I'm really proud of them because, like, they're helping people that are really sick. It makes me feel happy and grateful. It was good. It was good. Yeah. And chatting to your girls today, I think the overriding theme I get from them is they're really proud of you. Is that nice to hear that? Yes. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's nice. It's a little bit, um, uh, a little bit um, humbling um, to kind of hear this very sweet, but they're very sweet girls, so expect no less. <laughs> The, the challenges that healthcare staff face in terms of homeschooling, in terms of taking care of elderly parents, all of those things um, need practical response. The words aren't enough. There needs to be something very concrete and very deliverable uh, to assist staff to continue to deliver the care that they're delivering in the most challenging environment most of us will ever be in. Across the hospital, staff are being vaccinated. It's a welcome development for frontline workers who've been through a difficult year. The day the vaccines came out into the hospital, it was like winning the lotto, you know? There was, everyone was so happy and so delighted and everyone feels so much safer in work now. Um, you know, and the number of um, infections of staff in the hospital have reduced dramatically since the vaccine has come out. You know, I can't wait for everybody else, you know, the general population to get the vaccine and it will help. We were all happy when the vaccine was rolled out and people are a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more confident coming to work. But that doesn't take away from the workload and, and what we have to do on a day-to-day -to, -day -day basis. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> get pictures of everyone getting dressed. <laughs> when I got my first vaccine, a little bit of weight lifted in me. And then the second vaccine, another weight was lifted. It, it had given me a, a hope that we could live with the COVID and adapt to it and we can survive it. See an improvement, yeah, but are we getting physio in and stuff? I think what's really keeping people going through this time is the thought that the vaccine that's been rolled out through the hospital over the last couple of weeks will truly be a game changer will offer some safety to the staff over the next coming weeks. Because I think if they thought, the staff as a whole thought we were just going to go through cycle after cycle of this in a never-ending fashion for the next couple of years, I don't think they'd be facing up to it with the resilience they are now. In ICU, Dr. Michael O'Dwyer is on his ward round. And although patients' medical needs are the top priority, being isolated from their family and friends is extremely difficult. Hospital staff now play an important role in keeping patients and their families connected. Now there, you're turned on, okay? Yeah. A big part of intensive care is uh, communication with the family and allowing family members to spend time with sick loved ones and to be involved in decision-making processes and to understand what the patients are going through. 
uh, and it's been really, really challenging that the vast majority of patients now don't have family by the bedside. It's not safe. I think it's really hard for relatives. I think that's one of the most difficult things about this is that relatives can't get in to see their family members. Um, you know, we try and communicate as best we can. We try and give them lots of updates. Uh, we have the iPads, which are brilliant to communicate with families just so they can see their family member. But it's very difficult when they can't get in to visit. When the family are not there, we are the one who has to stay behind to keep them safe, to keep them um, safe from at risk, so we're the ones who stay behind, giving them a direct contact care. Snowing, raining, hailstones, sleet, you name it, it's all going on outside. W? Always. See any of them? It's a real problem since COVID. You know, obviously we've had no visitors for most of the time here to try and keep our hospitals as safe as possible. The wards were very busy, particularly at, at peak times, and we were always conscious of the fact that if you, you know, you're, if you have a family member who's unwell in hospital and you can't come in and visit them, you're trying to ring in, you may not be able to get a phone, uh, get someone answered on the phone. So there was systems put in place by the hospital where people could get an update on what was going on. The nursing staff have been really good with patients as they recover within the critical care to try and maintain contact through Skype calls and WhatsApp and video calls and keep family informed. But it's, uh, it's really difficult. And it's very difficult on the families to have loved ones within an ICU that they can't get into and they can't see. And I don't think you can quite explain perfectly over the phone what's going on in here to a family member. The reality for the thousands of patients who have found themselves hospitalised with COVID-19 over this past year is that they don't know for sure what long-term impact the virus has had on their body. 12 months into the pandemic and research is ongoing, but yielding results slowly. Tonight, there are still hundreds of people fighting this disease. Patrick Wogan, a patient on St Monica's COVID ward, is improving, but is wary of what the future might hold. It's now part of our lives. It's a whole different ballgame. I'm involved in a, my local GA club. Um, we're all on hold. Yeah. We're all trying to get back and do what we do and everything else, but it's going to be a different world. We're going to have to think up different ways of doing things and the way we run our lives and things like that, you know. I mean, the, the next big thing will be once everyone's vaccinated, or at least once the vulnerable populations have been vaccinated, the next big thing then will be when society reopens, mm. what's going to happen? The government is hoping that when we exit this lockdown, it will be our final lockdown. So am I. <laughs> Do you think that frontline workers could sustain a fourth wave if it had to come? I don't think anyone could sustain a fourth wave the way things are. You know, I think everyone is tired. I think, you know, um, frontline workers are clearly tired and healthcare workers are tired, but so, are, so is everyone, the whole population, and everyone has worked really hard at this. And um, I think uh, it would be very difficult to face into something like this again. We're just coming out of the third wave and people are starting to talk about, you know, what if there's a fourth wave, you know, and, you know, everybody's concerned about that. And we'd all be, you know, hopefully we know enough about the virus now to prevent a fourth wave. But the possibility is, is that there is going to be a fourth wave, you know, and if that happens, we're all going to be very disappointed, you know, but we'll just you take a deep sigh and pick ourselves up and we'll battle on. You know, that's all we can do. The one thing I have learned is that staff are so strong. They're so resilient and um, they're resourceful. 
you know, and we know more now about the virus than we've ever known, you know, so, you know, we'll take it on, we'll battle it, and hopefully we'll come out the other side. We're social human beings. You know, we do not do well on our own. And, and that's what we've seen both, both locally and nationally, is that we've been on our own and we are, as a people, really, really struggling with that. The vaccine, of course, gives us great hope, great hope that there is, there is light, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's a, it's a, it's a long tunnel, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Well, that special documentary was brought to you by our news correspondent, Zara King, cameraman Ronan McIntyre and producer Dave Chiernan. Next, we'll have reaction, debates, analysis and Professor Luke O'Neill will be here live on the hope offered by vaccines. Do stay with us. I'm joined by infectious diseases consultant Dr Owen Feeney of St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin, which of course featured in our special report this evening. Uh, Dr Feeney, thank you for joining us. We've just been watching and seeing what you and your colleagues and indeed your patients have been through during this third wave. And Neffet saying this evening that the metrics, however, are positive, that we are indeed coming out the other side of this third wave. Is that what you're feeling and seeing in your hospital? Uh, thanks, Kira. Yes, I think that would reflect our uh, experience to date. Uh, I think you, from the documentary, you've seen that the months of January and February were very difficult for us, a very busy time, um, a lot of sick patients and uh, staff under significant pressure. And thankfully, in the last couple of weeks, we are seeing an improvement in a lot of those metrics, uh, reduced infections among staff thanks to the vaccine rollout, reduced uh, number of patients presented to the hospital and a reduction in the number of patients in the hospital and thankfully in the intensive care unit with COVID-19. So we are seeing that reflected in our uh, figures and what we're seeing on the ground. So do you and your colleagues feel confident now that that third wave is the final wave of COVID-19? Um, I think we, we hope. Uh, there's a, a lot of trepidation. Uh, we are concerned about what is going to happen as society reopens. We're obviously uh, delighted to have been vaccinated. I think that came across in the, vac in the documentary as well. Um, but we are, as Andrew said in the in the BCSO earlier on, the uh, concern is as the vulnerable groups are vaccinated and society reopens, what is going to happen? Um, we, I think healthcare workers are, are tired, they're fatigued, and they are very concerned about the potential of a fourth wave or further waves. And we really want to make sure that the resources are put in place to try and prevent that happening, that good contact tracing systems, good public health systems are put in place so we don't have to go back through what we just have been through in the last two uh, months. And essentially you say there, uh, Dr Feeney, I hope these are put in place. It would seem to suggest that you feel that they haven't all been put in place a year into this pandemic. So where are the failures at this point, do you feel? I think uh, if you look at you know, what, what has happened so far and what kind of fell apart in January and February, I think uh, really robust uh, contact tracing systems, uh, the ability to backward contact trace, uh, uh, easy access to testing, and uh, no matter where you can, where where you are, and, and and where you want to get your test, 
Um, I think, you know, and, and having access to all that data really would make a difference if we can, if we're hoping to try and bring this, to, I suppose, keep this pandemic uh, under control in the future. Um, we've clearly made progress. We've clearly got our numbers down, but it's been quite slow. Uh, and we really don't want to go back to where we were before. And just very briefly, uh, Dr. Feeney, I think sometimes we forget that, you know, hospitals are there to serve those non-COVID patients. And I'm wondering what limitations you're still facing in your hospital in terms of having to treat non-COVID related health issues at this point. Thanks, Kira. Yeah, I suppose that was one of the big differences of the third wave versus the first wave is we really tried to keep non-COVID work going as much as possible. Uh, we still had some uh, uh, impact on our clinic abilities and they're just really ramping up again. Um, but there's been obviously waiting lists have been uh, impacted because of that. Um, the theatre spaces are beginning to, uh, the ICU pressures begin to come under control. Theatres are beginning to reopen again, but there's a significant backlog of, of work to be got through. Uh, and it's going to take a lot of uh, work from our healthcare colleagues in the coming months to try and get back on top of this. And um, where we still, as we mentioned in the documentary, we still have uh, significant pressures on uh, or limitations on visiting within hospitals. Uh, I can't see that being ease, unfortunately, in the short term. All right, we're going to leave it there, but we wish you and your colleagues well. Uh, thanks, Dr. Owen Feeney there. Thanks, Karen. And Sinn Féin TD David Cullinan is here and Junior Minister Patrick O'Donovan joins me via Skype this evening. And Patrick, I'm sure you saw that report. It's hard to believe at times it's a full year since the first confirmed case of COVID-19. 4,200 deaths, 220,000 cases, three waves, three lockdowns later. Has this government and the previous government been utterly, I suppose, paralysed and dominated by COVID-19? Well, I suppose if you take the whole island into account, it's over 6,000 people, unfortunately, that have lost their lives uh, from COVID. Uh, and you think of the people that have passed away again tonight, uh, and there will be deaths tomorrow, and there will be deaths, uh, you know, the next day, and there will be deaths, unfortunately, for, for many days to come until we have finally, um, everybody who needs to be vaccinated, vaccinated, and we have finally closed the book uh, on COVID-19, and, um, you know, finally, uh, be put it behind us uh, and put this awful pandemic behind us uh, and we think tonight of those 6,000 families um, who have so far been bereaved across the island and the over um, 215,000 people as you say in this jurisdiction that have had in many cases life-changing um, circumstances uh, from, from the disease. Uh, over a million people today um, being supported in one shape or form uh, or another by the state in terms of financial incomes. Um, so tw 12 months ago today, um, if anyone had thought um, that we would have set out on this journey, um, that you could have laid out what was going to happen, um, I don't think anybody could have charted this. Uh, and there is no country in the world that has come out of this unscathed. Um, I think really, though, if you contrast uh, how Ireland has performed, uh, and, I, and I use that word because it's very hard to pick another word, versus some of our nearest neighbours or indeed some North American countries, um, then we have, we, have, we have done better. Um, that's not to say that, uh, you know, that we haven't learned uh, along the way, and there has been learnings along the way, and your, your, your um, earlier VT at the start shows that each wave has brought its own learnings. 
and um, we have learned more uh, and this wave unfortunately we've learned um, a huge amount because it has been so aggressive and this latest variant okay. particularly given the fact that over 90 percent of the cases that we're confronted with at the moment of the uk variant it is so aggressive it is so nasty it transmits so rapidly uh, and you saw there it's so sad husband and wife inside an icu together um, and her, you know that lady asking um, the ICU consultant um, how was himself doing, and, and you know the consultant trying to put it in, in as nice as way as possible that he was doing as well as yeah. he could. Um, the sadness associated with this as well, and the havoc it has reached across communities. And I represent a very rural community, and the trauma that it has reached. I mean, we have a very um, you know part of our very strong part of our community is saying farewell to the dead, uh, and it is a very important part of the way we live our lives. Yeah, I just want um, to put some of the points that you've... Um, and you can't bite a loved one. It is just horrific. Yeah, it has been. I just want sorry to cut across you there. It's a bit difficult when you're on Skype, but I have David Cullinan here in studio. Um, Listening to uh, Patrick O'Donovan there, he said, look, no country's come out unscathed, but Ireland has done quite well. Would you agree with that? And what do you recognise as being some of the government's successes in the handling of this pandemic? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge the loss uh, and all of those people who lost their lives and families who have been bereaved. Of course I do. And I also want to acknowledge the huge sacrifices that people have made. You know, many people have lost their jobs. Many businesses have been closed now for far too long. Uh, many families are struggling on less incomes. And obviously all of that takes its toll. We know the impact this is having on people's mental health and on people socially and economically. And we all want to root out of this crisis and people want to get back to some level of normality. And that will only happen if we get the basics right. And in my view, there are basics that we have never got right. We've never got test and trace right, as we've seen in your package. We have never made the investments. I put a parliamentary question down on the levels of staffing for testing and tracing last week. And even though the government had a target of 2,000 swabbers and contract tracers, there is less than 1,600 employed. So we are still so not you getting then, the basics David right. Would you say when you look at the last year, um, I don't know what you recognise as being the successes, I don't think you've quite answered that, but in terms of the failures, you think it's really down to public health. It's contact tracing, isolating. That's the area where we failed. I think success is getting the numbers down low and keeping the numbers low. And there has been occasions when we have got the numbers low and then we dropped the ball and the government dropped the ball and the virus got out of control. I want this to work. The same as Patrick and the same as anybody listening to this programme. We all want a plan and a strategy that will work. We have to get tests and trace right. We have to stop with the half measures and falling short. We have fallen short on travel, for example, in terms of mandatory quarantine. We have fallen short on sharing data with our colleagues in the North, where the Minister for Health to still not sharing that data. And people want to know when they make the sacrifices that they are making, that the government have their backs and the government will get it right. And Patrick O'Donovan, did you hear um, what David Cullen had to say there? And do you accept that, that there have been feelings around testing and tracing, around mandatory quarantine, and that we're also paying the price because of those failures? Look, I mean, in terms of testing and tracing, all of the spare capacity that has been available in the civil and public services have been have been put to, to good use in terms of testing and tracing, and that has been the case from the very start. Uh, and like David knows this, and this has been this has been uh, you know tried out uh, on every media platform now going on for for, for months, and the, the arguments are the same. And in relation to mandatory quarantining. Um, again, the legislation is going through the Shannon this week and will become law, hopefully, 
This week, the president will sign it into law and we will have one of the strongest, most robust uh, mandatory quarantining uh, pieces of legislation anywhere in Europe. All right, and, let me just let David Cullen on back in there. The reason why the arguments are the same, Patrick, is because we haven't resolved the issues. I've just put to you the figures that the target... Sorry, let me finish. I didn't interrupt you. Sorry, Patrick. The target set by the government, not by me, was 2,000 staff for testing and tracing. We have left less than 1,600 as we sit here tonight. We have not not got travel checks right. We have not got the all-island solutions right. And I would imagine I, like you, want us to get this right because we all want to make sure that we can get back to some level of normality. And as I said, I people are making there? huge sacrifices. All right, let's let they want the government to get it right and they're that. angry and frustrated because the yeah, government yeah, are not getting some of these basics like right. And, and David, you might give me... You might give me and please don't you do the usual old Sinn Féin three-card trick now to shout me down. The reality is that there's two jurisdictions on the island and you know that and you're in government on one of them. And for the last uh, 12 months, we've been trying uh, to get the British government and your own colleagues in Northern Ireland to work with us in relation to an all-island solution in relation to this as well. And, you know, an all-island approach isn't just the Irish government providing all of the solutions in relation to everything that has, has to happen on this island. You have to take responsibility as a party in government in Northern Ireland for what your own misgivings is. If you look in relation to what your party's responsibilities are in the jurisdiction that you're in government in, the, the disease was completely out of control in Northern Ireland. For months, the rate of infection was completely out of control. And in this jurisdiction, we are actually supporting the jurisdiction in the north uh, by providing information in relation to passengers that are transiting through Dublin Airport and going on to the north. And we are going to provide further information to make sure that those passengers that are going on will be able to make sure that they access all of the relevant information and that the Northern Ireland Authority should be providing. Patrick, Rodney, could, you just, could you just um, maybe address the uh, issue of contact tracing there? Because at this point what is it now, the 1st of March, we still don't have, do we, retrospective contact tracing up and running. There's still, I think, 50% of cases of COVID-19 in this country and we have no idea where somebody has picked up the infection. So that hasn't been achieved yet. You would recognise that. Yeah, and look, contact, tra the, the contact tracing in relation to where people have picked up the disease in the community, we have, we have from the very, very early on, we were one of the first countries in Europe to put in place the apps in relation to trying to get people to make sure that they carry the app on their phone, to use technologies to make sure that people, um, you know, cooperated with the, with the um, HSE to make sure that they provided as much information as possible so that we could use the information that was available to us. But this is not something that's unique to Ireland. Contact tracing and being able to go back to find out where people were, this isn't something that's just unique to Ireland. Okay. This is a problem that is confronting every jurisdiction in the world. No country has had a silver bullet when it comes to making sure that we actually have a zero COVID. And I know that this is something now that Sinn Féin are also trying to you know, right. trump it as a zero COVID. There's no such country in the world that has managed to have that sort of policy is something right. that can Look, be, it doesn't exist. Uh, Patrick O'Donovan, apologies to cut across you there, but I do have somebody uh, waiting on Skype because obviously one of the big issues with this pandemic uh, that could end up costing the state up to 40 billion euro has exposed many inequalities in our society. And we're joined now by Michelle Murphy of Social Justice Ireland. Michelle, thank you for joining us. Um, for Social Justice Ireland, what do you think are the greatest inequalities that have been exposed by COVID-19. Good evening, Kira. 
Well, I suppose the one thing the pandemic has shown us that our future must be different and we need a new social contract to build a better society for all. And really what it's done, it's shone a glaring light on existing inequalities. So the problem of low pay, for example, I mean, in January of this year, with almost half a million people on the pandemic unemployment rate, the income tax receipts were almost 4% higher than they were in January 2020. I mean, that's just a staggering statistic. It's shone a light on the persistent levels of inequality and poverty, on our dysfunctional market-driven housing system, and on the persistent removal of public services and infrastructure from rural Ireland and rural areas. Sorry, just to and be... What we have seen... Clear, sorry, Michelle, just to pick up on that point about um, income tax actually being higher despite all of the people on the pandemic unemployment payment. Would that not suggest that we have quite a fair tax system because the low paid weren't contributing huge amounts to those income tax receipts? Oh, yes, our tax, income tax system is progressive so that the more you earn, the more you pay. But what the, this does show is with almost half a million people on a pandemic unemployment payment, so out of work, our income tax receipts were higher. So we have a huge problem in this country with low pay and that thousands of livelihoods have been destroyed in sectors such as accommodation, hospitality, food, retail and leisure. And those are sectors that are, you know, dominated by the issue of low pay and have predominantly female employees. So, you know, these are all challenges that were there prior to COVID. But the problem is the pandemic has really shone a light on them. And I suppose the challenge now is how do we address these issues? And how do we address these issues? I mean, we saw the um, Cabinet Subcommittee um, on the Economy this evening meeting and looking to the EU for 850 million euro as a support package for, you know, getting the economy back up and running when we ever, you know, get to emerge from COVID. Where should that money be spent then? How should it be spent? Well, you have to prioritise whether our, our social infrastructure or public services. So things like the broadband capacity, for example, childcare, social housing, ensuring that we've access to care throughout the life cycle for people. We've an aging population. But Kira, we need to look beyond just that recovery and resilient package because in the broader scheme of things, 853 million isn't huge. We need to look how we're going to recover post-pandemic, how we deliver that new social contract for people how we bring people with us. What is the government's national economic plan, for example? How are they going to ensure we have a vibrant economy right. to fund decent services and infrastructure, that we can fund that true translation, that we have good governance, and that we have the green just transition that you know, okay. we've really failed to plan for over the past decade. All right, we're going to leave it there. But Michelle uh, Murphy, thank you for your time. And David Cullinan, thanks for coming into studio um, to speak to us this evening. Now, coming up after the break, frontline doctors on the vaccines and Professor Luke O'Neill on the gift of the jab. Do stay with us. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to our special coverage marking the first year of the COVID crisis in Ireland. Uh, Patrick O'Donovan is still on Skype this evening and joining me in studio is Luke O'Neill. I don't think you need a full introduction any more, Luke. <laughs> That's right. You're certainly one of the faces of this pandemic. Did you ever foresee in your work that we would be living through a pandemic of this nature for this long? in your lifetime? Not really, you know, we imagined September, October, it might relent a bit, you know, and look what happens. So it's still an amazing story and we're still in the middle of it, by the way, we're not there yet, you know, but we're all gobsmacked by what's happened really, including us immunologists. We never thought it would persist so long and, and with still some uncertainties ahead of us as well, let's be honest, you know. And what are those uncertainties? Well, the dreaded new strains that everybody knows about now. We know there's three strains at least out there. We're not still fully sure if the vaccine will fully protect. We're optimistic though, because the vaccines will probably give some protection against them. And meanwhile, those drug companies are working hell for leather to make vaccines for those strains. But again, it's a new thing that came along that we didn't quite expect. We didn't think the virus would mutate as quickly as it did. The evidence six months ago was maybe we wouldn't see as many strains. And yet we've seen them. So yet again, it tells us this is a brand new virus, still amazing as it may seem. And yet, uh, in the research I was doing today, I came across a lot of articles saying we should have predicted that there would be a coronavirus that would infect the world, that it was being spoke about in circles that I presume you frequent, I don't, and that the world should have been more ready for this. Should they? Is that a fair criticism? We expected think? a flu pandemic is the first thing, like the swine flu in 2009. We thought there'd be another flu pandemic. And there was a small number of people working on coronaviruses kept saying, no, it could be a coronavirus. Remember vividly in 2018, it came off and we all thought, nah, there's not much of a chance of that. And of course, remember, we got rid of SARS and MERS quite quickly. That's in the same family. So last January, I first saw this on the 6th of January, I saw a little science article, and the prediction was, this could be like SARS, put the fire out quickly and it won't be that much to worry about. That began to change, you know. And it's a special virus that spreads without symptoms. That's the key feature, by the way. Whereas SARS and MERS, you're really sick and you're spreading and stay home. You know, with this one, 50% of people spread it with no symptoms at all. And that made it especially malicious. And we didn't know that back in January, say 12 months ago. In terms of the vaccine, um, we know that it, people seem to be getting less sick, certainly once it's been administered. What do we know now about its impact on the transmissibility of the virus? Well, every day the news gets better. Let's put it that way, right? So in Israel... That is good to hear. Well, it's true in Israel and the UK. Good data from the UK. Now, even today, there was a great graph showing the death rate falling. In North America, care home deaths are now going down. Has to be because of the vaccine. So we know the vaccines are working. And now evidence that it will stop transmission. And in fact, one study I saw yesterday was maybe by 80% decrease in transmission. If that's true, now again, it's a work in progress, that will be tremendous because now the viral count begins to plummet, as well as the death rate going down, of course, which is the big thing to look for. The fact that transmission goes down drastically, that's the dream come true. Now, again, we've got to wait for more data. There's been 226 million people vaccinated in the world now. Isn't that spectacular? Over the course of two months. And so do you expect that 
data to come through quite quickly? Yeah. Every day there's new data. The Israelis are very good at monitoring. They've, they've vaccinated 8 million people, you see, and they're being watched very closely, and the UK as well. So we'll see new data as the, as the, days, come, as the days come along. I just want to go to Dr Alona Duffy, who we've spoken to on numerous occasions over the last year. She's a Monaghan GP who's been battling the pandemic on the front line, and she joins me now. Uh, Dr Duffy, a full year, as we say, we've been speaking to you about COVID-19. I'm sure many of us have had interactions with our GP, but in a very, very different way to what we were used to. Do you think GP practices are changed forever because of this? I think they are. I think they're good and bad things to it. I think, number one, we've shown how we can adapt so readily to changes and how we deliver the service and how we deal with patient demands, expectations, and obviously the COVID restrictions. I think many patients feel that actually in some ways they can access this more easily because they've increased access via phone consultations. I think the difficulty is that it has been difficult up till now to see as many patients as we'd like to see. But with the rollout of the vaccine and most GPs now vaccinated and most of their staff, I think that will allow us to feel safer seeing patients and more importantly, patients to feel safer seeing us. So I think it's a good day and it, it's great to hear Luke on again. He's so positive and gives us all hope with regards to the future with our vaccinations. I mean, I was reading some of your notes earlier today and you said the HSE hasn't learned from all of its mistakes yet and that's a fear now um, as we come out of this third wave. What mistakes have they not learned from? Well, I think, number one, communication has been difficult from the beginning and GPs have worn the brunt of that at the very early stages. We were the people responsible for referring um, people with symptoms for testing. And as you may remember, in the middle of March, um, we were advised to refer everybody for testing. And over a weekend, all of that changed and all the people we had referred, thousands and thousands, were suddenly told you won't be tested. And we were the person that they, they kind of called anxious, angry, upset, frustrated. Then we moved on to a time when uh, the contact tracing kind of couldn't cope with the vast numbers. And again, literally over a weekend, GPs were told they were going to be responsible for the arranging of testing for patients. So I think GPs have been put under huge pressure. We, we have dealt with that. We've accepted that extra workload. But at the moment now, the issue with regards to vaccine clinics and vaccination of our over 70s is continuing to cause problems. All right. There are GPs as opposed to tonight complaining they haven't received confirmation of when they'll get their vaccine. And I can imagine that's difficult for them and their patients. And um, we're going to have to leave it there. But to Dr. Alona Duffy, uh, thanks for speaking to us this evening. Luke O'Neill is staying with me here in studio. And after the break, we're going to focus on the other costs of this pandemic in terms of young generations and mental health. Speaking to Pete Lunn and Stephanie Prizer. That's next. Dr. Cleona Nikali is an infectious disease expert and joins me now by Skype on the struggles faced by frontline staff. Uh, good evening to you, doctor, and thank you for taking the time to speak to us. Um, we watched a report this evening here on The Tonight Show, um, which really, I suppose, brought home the stress, the constant stress, what they talked about uh, the frontline staff have faced. I mean, you yourself, working in infectious diseases, um, I know last year, I mean, you just had to deal with stress and death and uncertainty on an almost daily basis. Absolutely. And I suppose I've been working as a, a doctor for the guts of, you know, nearly 20 years now. And I had never 
never been in a situation that was as hard to witness um, never seen as many people dying and um, dying on their own afraid um, and it was really really hard to see and I suppose I'm conscious I'm a consultant so I waltz onto the ward and waltz off again a couple of hours later but the nurses and the healthcare attendants um, and the younger doctors are there all day every day um, and I think it has taken a huge toll on people to, to witness that you know we're in this job because we care for people we care about what happens to them um, and and it can make you feel very powerless and very sad sometimes and um, long, to have witnessed what long term um, Dr Nikali do you think that is something that's going to have to be tackled and in what way you know can we try and help those who have perhaps been really impacted and affected by what they've seen on the front line so there's probably a lot of it's not just one thing it's it's lots of different things so there are things like you know maybe um, providing sessions where as a group we can reflect on what's happened in the last year and, and kind of in a safe way discuss our feelings and how it's affected us. I think that's one thing that would be really helpful. Um, some people will probably need individual psychological support and counselling um, and there is some level of that available through the HSE but it, it, it probably needs to be available at more sessions and and uh, you know in more depth for some people um, and then I think uh, people will need some time off to recover. I know myself, I was really lucky I could take four weeks off last summer when, when there was a lull in cases. Um, and I really needed that to process what I had seen in the spring. Um, because you're kind of, you know, when you're in the trenches, you can't, you can't, you don't, you can't afford uh, to, to really let those feelings come to the surface. And it's not until you can stop and pause and reflect that you can really process what has happened. And is that additional time off that you think frontline workers really are entitled to, Doctor? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, I think so. I mean, because people aren't an infinite resource. You know, we all have a, a tank that, that can get empty. Um, and we have fantastic healthcare staff in Ireland. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, and people have worked so hard, both people caring directly for COVID patients, but also all the people that, you know, um, hospital is a huge institution. 6,000 people work in James's and every single one of them has gone above and beyond um, in the last year to make sure that all our patients are safe, that we can continue looking after the COVID patients and the non-COVID patients. Um, so people are exhausted. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, that will need to be factored in over the next year or two in, in making sure that everybody stays healthy and is able to carry on for the rest of their lives, providing the excellent care that they do. Well, I'm joined here in studio by Professor Luke O'Neill and I'm also joined by Pete Lunn, a behavioural economist with the ESRA. Um, Pete, I just wonder, do you think it is important that when this is all over, whenever that may be, that we have a day or we take some time to reflect what we've been through as a country, to commemorate all of those that we've lost over the last year? Do we need that time out? This is a very good question, and in all honesty, I'm not sure. I mean, I typically trade in evidence, and we've never been here before. I mean, it, it's it's an unknown. I think in many ways what we're experiencing is probably closer to kind of wartime than other things we would have experienced during sort of peacetime generally. So I think as somebody who you know, works as a behavioural scientist, I've never seen evidence that particularly helps us to cope with this. So we fall back on general principles of good psychology, of positive psychology, and some of that would tell you that, yes, absolutely, we need to take some time to consider and process and get closure over what we've gone through, assuming we can get there, but there's a distance to go yet. There's work still to be done. And in terms of the research that the SRI has carried out, I mean, 
you seem, and I know I've spoken to you on numerous occasions over the last few months, where you've said time and time again, compliance levels are still very good. Yes, people are frustrated and angry and bored and all of those words, but how we feel and how we act are two very different things. And you think that's still the case? Yes, I mean, we presented some data today that shows that. I mean, if you just get people to scale, you know, how, you know, how frustrated are you on a scale of one to seven? I mean, you know, most people will say, yes, I, yes, I am. You know, this is tough going and they'll, they'll put a mark up there. But if you then get them to trade that off and you say, look, you know, trade off how tiresome the restrictions are, how big the burden is against keeping people safe and against protection, where would you place the trade-off? And as soon as you do that, everyone moves up, or almost everybody moves up to the end and saying, look, we've got to do this. When you put the trade-off explicitly in front of them, that's what they do. So the fact that we're feeling that way doesn't mean that that's what's driving our behaviour, because other things are driving our behaviour. What impact do the riots that we saw at the weekend have and the potential for further protests this weekend in Cork and perhaps, you know, an even larger protest on St Patrick's Day have on people and their sort of sense of being in this together and sense of, you know, wanting to comply? So that's another question for which I simply do not have the crystal ball. I don't know. I mean, I, I think the fact that some of the frustration has spilled over onto the streets to a greater level than we've seen it before. I mean, that might actually have a galvanising effect on some people. But then there's also the possibility that others who are frustrated sort of feel, well, you know, this is maybe a movement they want to join. So I genuinely have no idea. What I do know is the overwhelming majority of the population do not support that. The overwhelming majority of the population want to stick the course here and support what, generally speaking, the public health people and the government have done. You know, and there's been ups and downs with that, obviously, where mistakes have been made and there have been debates and all the rest of it. But overwhelmingly, actually, the public have been hugely supportive of the public health measures. And in general, throughout the pandemic, we're now a year, for almost all of that time, the, on average, the public actually wanted us to be more cautious than we were being. Do people say that but not mean it? I mean, do people definitely tell those who are carrying out the research in the ESRA the truth? You know, I sometimes wonder, do people say, you know, I absolutely am 100% compliant because they don't actually necessarily realise, you know, maybe some of their own behaviours that aren't compliant? People do overstate their compliance, it's true. Um, and we've measured that and we've got some idea of how large that effect is. But it remains the case the overwhelming majority are compliant. But what I'm talking about here is multiple measures where we ask people, for example, whether they want particular restrictions lifted, if so, when. Now, people have got no incentive to lie about that. I mean, they've got a view that they would form. And if anything, if somebody, you know, phones you up from a survey company and says, you know, what would you like to see happen? I mean, it's in your interest to t say what you think would happen, not to lie. But when we look at all of that and we look on average across the population, it has been the case pretty much throughout that the population wanted us to be more cautious. And the reason that surprises so many people is because it's out of step with the public debate because it's not the people who are making the noise. Yeah. Right? It's the people who are at home. I mean, we published data today that show that more than half the population doesn't see anyone outside their household in a 48-hour period. Right, doesn't, doesn't meet up with anybody. And that silent majority are sitting at home. And of course, when we survey a representative proportion, we get in touch with them and they say, no, we want the cautious approach because we can see what's going to have to be done here. And that's been going on for months. Uh, speaking of people who are making noise, there was a lot of noise certainly made uh, in Grafton Street this weekend. But look, you have been the subject of hate mail. Am I right? I have. Um, yeah, yeah, of yeah, a, yeah. a threat on the streets of Dublin where somebody came up and actually physically threatened you over the last couple of months? Yes, we all have, though. I think it's not just me, let me say that. A lot of hate mail, a lot of, you know, on Twitter, all this kind of thing. And then I've been four times I've been confronted in the street. Uh, once on Grafton Street, somebody pulled me back by the collar and said, you're a vaccine guy, how dare you, this kind of thing. You know, I take it on the chin here, to be honest. But I do worry about younger people being victims of awful trolling. I know two UK scientists, female, who are 
of friends of mine who are severely attacked, you know, and they just went on the media, that kind of thing. So there's an awful element of this nastiness, isn't there, has emerged in many ways. Now, it's part, people are frustrated, by the way, and angry and all these kinds of things, and it spills over into these kinds of attacks. But the worst thing would be if it put people off, say, a young woman scientist speaking in the media, if she's getting attacked, you see. It's a terrible and development in many ways. How serious are the threats that you've got? Well, my wife had five messages on her answer phone and work left saying, we're going to get your husband, for example. She, she doesn't need to hear that. My sister, who lives in Brighton, on Facebook, you're the sister of this guy who's pro-vaccine. It's mainly anti-vaxxers, you see. So it just happens here. It's very hard to control. For anyway. I never see so it. it's a death threat. Well, it effectively, it? it is, I suppose. Yeah, but I block it on Twitter. All my stuff in work goes to spam, anything nasty. I never see it. I'm too busy to be reading this stuff, you see. It doesn't really affect me. But as I say, I speak out about it because I worry about younger people who are attacked in that way. It's unacceptable that you'd see that, really. Um, what can the government do, do you think, over the next few weeks and months to keep people with them? Because we see Leo Varadkar in the letter to his parliamentary party, I think this evening, the Irish Independent, had it saying, look, there's going to be a little easing of the restrictions um, at the beginning of April, the five kilometres construction, for example, but there'll be nothing else really until May. So we're looking perhaps another 10 weeks of this. Do you think people are going to fray? Do you think as people see more and more people vaccinated, you know, support for the restrictions is going to nosedive? Pete? I think the first thing, in answer to your first question, the most important thing is to be straight, transparent, honest with people, put the data out there and say, look, we will do what we can when we can. And we, it's all about the numbers and we've got to watch that. Don't give false promises. Don't suggest you have got a crystal ball. Nobody knows. Philip Nolan doesn't know what the numbers are going to look like in one, two weeks' time, right? Nobody knows. So we've actually got to watch the numbers and respond and be flexible and live with the uncertainty. Through this whole pandemic, everybody wants an answer. And we hear time and time again, don't we, from um, government, you know, we can't give you data, we can't give you numbers, we can't give you but metrics, there's too much uncertainty. This is what is so hard, because every political issue that we have to deal with as a society, people take positions and they argue for the those positions and they can stick with them. You cannot do that with this pandemic. You cannot ask that of a politician. And the reason is because nobody knows what situation we're going to be in one or two weeks' time. For all we know, another variant appears. For all we know, the numbers start going in a different direction. Right? We have to be flexible and live with the uncertainty and help people to live with the uncertainty. Now, one way to do that is to be really transparent. Say what your aim is, what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, and be as open and transparent as possible. And accept that we've got to live with that uncertainty because that's the nature of the beast. That's what we're fighting. I think we're getting to the point... Um Look, and I think we saw it in that poll in the Irish Times last week that, you know, as people become vaccinated, as our vulnerable become vaccinated, people want those restrictions mm. to be, you know, eased more and more. Um, I think people are going to want to try to travel, aren't they? Perhaps to go abroad, to do the things that we love as Irish people. What did you make of the suggestion this evening from the EU that they're going to uh, introduce this digital green pass, which I think is... Sort of like a vaccine passport, in another word. Well, the one thing we do know is the vaccines are working, as I said, and we can project into the future the death rate will fall, hospitalizations will fall. This will become like any other infectious disease as we move towards May, June, July. Now, what do we do then is the question, right? If we open up, that could be too quick. The variants are out there, so travel has to be considered as well as a factor. We now know what the rules of the game are here. I think that that idea of a pass or a certificate is a better word for it. If you use the word pass, people think they're free to do whatever they like. So I, I would give people vaccine certificates. What's very important, though, is everybody has to get access to the vaccine. Otherwise, you're excluding people through no fault of their own. So it's all about the rollout. Yet again, it's about getting the vaccine into people's arms. But, but one way to allow travel back is to allow some kind of certificate. One way to open venues like 
the Israelis. The good news is we can follow Israel and see how they get on, you know. Now, it's not a strange thing. They may get into all kinds of trouble and we can avoid that trouble. But they're now beginning to reopen with some kind of vaccination idea. We worry about the Palestinians not getting vaccinated. Of course we do. These things aren't simple. But you see, the pressure will mount up in June, July to reopen. Watch. And Boris Johnson has said June 21st is Freedom Day. Now, there's a risky thing to say, because if that happens and it all reopens, it could come back. And, and as Pete correctly said, there are still some unknowns here. But for me, it's all about hope as well. You've got to say to people, look, we can somehow control this. We have a plan of attack here. We can use science to help us beat this thing in the following way. There will be the endless caveats. But people want to hear what the plan is and give them some kind of hope for the next sort of three, six, nine month period. Uh, you did say at one stage, I think it was maybe it was the end of last year, that we'd be in a beer garden for June. Still optimistic. Are you? Well, it'll be one person and there'll be 200 <laughs> metres around them drinking a beer. It'll be me. Um, I, I and think, nobody would deny you that, Luke O'Neill. No, I think I, you've earned it. I'm still optimistic. Outdoors is safe. If there's one message, we've said this for months here, to get outdoors as quick as you can, that is a big de-risker. So that's for definite. So get outdoors. A few people in a beer garden around a table, well-spaced for an hour. We'd all accept that, wouldn't we? A nice can of whatever, or pint of lager in the sun. Wouldn't that be a nice thing? And again, it gives you a hope. You can imagine that this, this is not unreasonable to say we could get there by June. Certainly July, August, we should be well down that road, I would predict. Do you think the government should be giving people more detail like that, more hope? Because I think a lot of people felt in, in Michael Martin's address last week there wasn't a huge amount of hope, was there? There's a big difference between what you said about giving more detail and giving hope. Okay. Yes, give hope. Yes, have a strategy. Yes, articulate what it is that you're trying to achieve. But if you give detail and false promises that you can't keep because you don't know how the data are going to evolve, then you lose credibility. So it is important. You have to embrace the uncertainty. That is the game that we are in. And that's what's so difficult, as I said, for the, for the politicians to deal with, is to actually say, we do not know. I do not know where this is going to be in three, four weeks' time, two, three months. But you can articulate a strategy. You can articulate where you're trying to head. You know, you can get across to people the possibility that I might be able to sit and have a pint with Luke which is at the, at the moment a really, really nice thought, <laughs> quite frankly. We can all hope for this, but we, we've learned we've as, as the year has gone on. I mean, if you think where we were at only a year ago, I mean, I remember leaving my office and saying to colleagues, well, I guess it might be the end of April before I see you again. Yeah, and it's you know, 12 months and here, I, and here I am a year later. Oh, Lord, uh, it goes on and on. Uh, I want to speak to Stephanie Pricer. Uh, she joins me now to talk about the impact of the pandemic on younger generations who we know have faced multiple challenges, um, Stephanie, during these three lockdowns. I mean, they must feel in so many ways that they've nearly lost a year of their life, a really important year, I think, uh, for young people. Um, how has it impacted you and the speak people, I suppose, that you would be speaking to on a daily basis, Stephanie? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, there was an article today about um, 12 to 18 year olds, which are really the young people. Um, I think what's interesting is that I am considered still young, even though I am not young and people who are in my age bracket are not young. And yet the things that mark us as not being young, we haven't been able to achieve because, because before this pandemic, things like access to housing and permanent jobs, the gig economy had prevented us from reaching those milestones. And what the pandemic has done is exacerbated those. So I can only speak for my experience and the experience of my friends who I text, but I have some friends, you know, who are in house shares with six strangers, friends, but strangers, and they're all working from home now. They all have to work in the kitchen because they don't have desks in their room. And they say that it's like, like a call center, you know, like that it's just not 
ideal in any way. It doesn't allow for social distancing. It's totally unideal. And then I have on the other end of the spectrum, friends of mine who, you know, girls, friends of mine who are still single, who were, you know, dating before COVID and now have for the last 12, 14 months have stopped dating because it's not safe and it's not advisable. And, you know, have this sort of real pressure of like, their biological clocks ticking and their, um, you know, the things that they want to achieve in their lives being on hold. And that totally being an amount of time that's not going to be given back to them. And it's very easy to make those things sound trite when you're looking at it in comparison to the pandemic, the number of lives that have been lost, the number of people who have contracted this virus and the things that people have had to sacrifice. But I think that for so many months now, we have sort of swallowed our own issues and our griefs and our frustrations because someone else has it worse. And it's not the best thing to do for your mental health to deny your issues because they are not as large as somebody else's. And I think that, you know, to manage the world and accept the sort of wild, uncontrollable chaos of it is to say like these are the things that I'm struggling with and find solidarity with someone who is also voicing those issues. And has it become easier or more difficult to share those issues to speak about the mental health impacts do you think uh, Stephanie? I think it's become more difficult. I hear the word mental health more and more, mm. um, but it seems to be taking on a strange hue where it's associated with going to the gym or getting your hair dyed or those sort of slightly more frivolous things that actually the mental health impact of this, and I know you were speaking about earlier whether the government would have something in place to deal with the mental health impact of this after the fact, but when you're in the middle of something, it's really difficult to, to process it because you're not, you, you don't have that perspective. And so it's difficult to talk about it because it's difficult to understand it, you know? Like I've been struggling, we've all struggled through this last year. I've been up and down this last maybe two weeks when actually since the sun has come out, I've started to see my my mental health lift. January was really difficult, you know, and it was sort of like conversations with GPs and starting to see a therapist again because it was getting to be a lot. And okay. I find myself kind of sitting in front of someone saying, I, I, I don't, you know, I haven't lost anyone to COVID and I don't have... But your struggle is very major much issues at the moment. But I'm struggled, yeah. That it, it, there's sorts of like low level anxiety all the time. All right, um, Stephanie, thanks for speaking to us and for uh, sharing your experience of living uh, with COVID for the last uh, 12 months. And my thanks to my other guests uh, for this part of the program: Luke O'Neill, Pete Lunn, and Cleona Nee Kelly. After the break, we're going to be speaking to Zara King on the anniversary of the COVID crisis. Do stay with us. Welcome back. I'm joined now by our own news correspondent, Zara King, who brought us that uh, documentary film from the front line this evening. We saw, I suppose, um, Zara, how difficult it has been for those patient facing. But I know for somebody like you and for a lot of other journalists who've been out covering the story day in, day out for the last 12 months, it has 
I presume, been pretty difficult too. Yeah, I mean, it has been. Obviously, it's not as tough as what we saw in, in the documentary tonight, but yeah, it has had its challenges, I suppose, going back as far as that first case being confirmed essentially this night last year and us kind of running into the Department of Health. I don't think any of us, Kira, knew what was out before us at that time and we couldn't have anticipated, I guess, the year that we would end up having. What was the standout moment for you or standout moments, perhaps? A lot of them, I suppose, meeting the families of people who died, to be honest, has been the standout for me. Um, also, simply seeing the vaccine being rolled out, a miracle of science and seeing the positivity that comes with that and I suppose the hope and optimism we have for the future. So I suppose between those two things are two completely different things but uh, I suppose they really define what has been an insane 12 months for everyone. And from the time that you spent in St Vincent's Hospital, what was the sort of one key message coming from those frontline staff uh, when they look you know, into the future? They don't want to see this happen again. They really don't. I mean, they want society to reopen just as much as anyone does, but they want it to happen slowly and carefully. They don't want to find themselves completely snowed under again for what would be a fourth wave. They simply don't have the energy to go they through it again. They don't have it. No, they don't. All right, we're going to leave it there. But Zara, thank you for uh, speaking to us this evening. That's all from us tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night at 10. We leave you with some of the key images from the first year of the COVID-19 crisis in Ireland. Good night and do stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.